Good morning, Freedom Church, and welcome back to our series on David, King David. Um, it's the first week of December. I hope you're enjoying Advent and getting excited for Christmas. I've even put a little tree, if you can see that in the corner there, uh, just, just to remind us it is. Um, it was great last week, wasn't it? Just to hear from Dave Holden. Uh, he was speaking to us from 2 Samuel chapter 5, and again reminding us that at every stage, David inquired of God, and how this was so important. He didn't presume anything. He didn't presume that he knew what to do. He went to God and he inquired. And you know, King David was anointed 15 years previous to this, but it's here now he is actually ruling. He's just, these are actually his first few days, first few weeks as king. And I don't know about you, but I found the presidential election fascinating this year. I think it's one of those ones that we're going to remember for a long time, especially with uh, Donald Trump in there. And I want to remind us of one that happened over 85 years ago that is still well remembered. It was in 1933 and it was uh, Franklin Roosevelt who was declared the president in that year of the US. And it was during a very difficult season. It was the season of the Great Depression. And he was promising the American people that he would not only lead America uh, out of this Great Depression, but the entire world. And he says this, he says, there are many ways in which it can be helped but it can never be helped merely by talking about it. We must act and act quickly. And you know, this is the first hundred days um, of his presidency. They were so focused, President Roosevelt, that ever since then, each new president um, has been judged by what he does in his first hundred days. And I think King David here has started uh, his first hundred days, if you like, he's become king and he is acting with such intentionality. He knows exactly what his priorities were when he became king. So firstly, chapter five, he took Jerusalem. He felt like uh, God had spoken to him about where he would establish his kingdom and his people. And then here in chapter six, his focus is actually on bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to where it belongs amongst the people of Israel. And we've seen the Indiana Jones who's, you know, chasing after the Ark of the Covenant. This, David isn't playing Indiana Jones here. This was actually a king who understands that he wants his kingdom to be built on the right foundations. And he knows for the kingdom to thrive, it has to be built on those foundations. And so he's doing totally contrary things to Saul. He's inquiring of God. He's uh, particular on making sure the presence of God is amongst them. And, you know, as a nation... Of Israel, what actually marked them out from any other nation on the planet was the presence of Yahweh amongst them, the one true God. And I want to spend a little bit of time this morning actually telling a little bit of the story of the ark uh, and what happens there, because this chapter actually makes no sense without understanding the background first. So just to say the ark is simply a box. Uh, it was made of acacia wood. Um, and it was built about 450 years previously under Moses back in the desert. And this box was the box that God had instructed his people to make. And he said he was going to reside in this box. And that sounds really strange, doesn't it? And of course, we all know God was never defined or contained by a box. But for his people here, for Israel, this was about him being present amongst them. This was him directing them at every point in the desert, showing them who he is um, and showing them that they were his people. 
But I just want to say God was very specific about this box and how it was to be built, where it was to lie, even how it was to be lifted and carried as the nation moved from place to place. And you know, the presence of God is holy. And if you handled this box without due care or even looked at it, you would die. And quickly the nation of Israel realized that this box held immense power. You see, when priests carrying the ark reach the banks of the river Jordan, the river literally stops flowing. And as they cross this, uh, the river Jordan, what happens? The river flows again. And actually it starts flowing with its immense force and it actually crashes over the banks of the river. When the ark is carried around the walls of Jericho, which is this highly fortified city, the walls just come crashing down. So the people understand that this ark is powerful. It could actually destroy lives and save them too. But what happened over time is that this nation of Israel realized that this box was extremely powerful, but I think they started to believe in the power of the box rather than the all-powerful God who chose to dwell in it. And the box became a little bit like a lucky charm for them. They thought that as long as they had this box, they were invincible. Even when they were choosing to disobey the one who actually dwelt in it. And of course, what happens in this history is they lose the ark to the Philistine army. It's actually in chapter four of, of 1 Samuel. And this was a terrible day, actually. Israel lost 30,000 people in this battle. And the Philistines... You know, all the nations had heard about Yahweh. They'd heard about this uh, little Israel who had defeated the Egyptians. And um, so he was feared. And the Philistines knew this box was where Israel's king lived. They'd known his might in defeating armies. And they decided that they were going to take this box. And they put it in their temple, thinking that now they had the God of Israel, he would fight for them. He'd be on their sides. But what happens is as they enter the temple in the morning, uh, they see their God, Dagon, and he's fallen off his altar and he's face down in front of the ark. And so they replace him. They put him back on the altar and they come in the next day. And not only is he facing down against the ark this, this morning, but he has no head or arms. They've been cut off. And what happens next is the entire town starts getting afflicted with tumours because of the ark. And the Philistines, they actually respond with absolute blind panic, as you would. And they send the ark of the covenant to the next town where the same thing happens. And then again, on to the next town and the same thing happens. Finally, the Philistines, they get the message that Yahweh is not to be messed with. And they send this ark back to Israel, which you think is a great day. And this is just in the next chapter in 1 Samuel. But what happens is 70 Israelites end up looking into the ark and they all die. And so another sad day. Um, and they didn't know what to do with this ark at this point. So it was sent to a guy's house called Abimadab and he was to look after this ark. There was a lot of fear over this ark that it was bringing death. And... Um, here in this story right now, we have a king doing something that he knows is right. 
he wants to point the people of God back to understanding uh, the ark, what it is. And he de desperately wants the presence of God in the camp. He doesn't want to start his reign in any other fashion. So he takes 30,000 men to collect the ark from Abinadab's house. And we're going to read in this passage, but they start dancing and singing and celebrating and playing all sorts of instruments as they celebrate the Ark of the Covenant coming back to Jerusalem to where it rightfully belongs. But what happens next in this chapter stops all the celebrations quite rapidly. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel 6. Uh, and we're going to look at it um, and it's from verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart and bought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached down and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act and therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Now just to say that this account is also found in Chronicles. And last week we were talking about David inquiring of God. He did that regularly. But actually we find out from this account in Chronicles that when he went to collect the ark, it appears the only people he inquired of was his soldiers, his military men. And he chose to bring the ark back in the same way, actually, that the Philistines carried it away from Israel. It was on a cart. But God, as we've discussed, is a holy God. And the way that Israel was supposed to handle the ark, as I've mentioned and we see it in Exodus, was very specific. And it was to remind them actually of the sheer holiness and power of the God Yahweh that they worship. And they were supposed to cover this ark with cloth and leather so that you couldn't see it. And then they were to be carried by priests, by the Levites there on special poles. It was to be placed on their shoulders. So here we have in this account, Uzzah, who was surely just trying to protect the ark from toppling off the cart. Absolutely, yes. But just as seven Israelites had died looking into the ark in 1 Samuel chapter 6, Uzzah here in this passage dies for doing the unthinkable. He's coming into contact. He's touching a holy God. And you know, it reminds me of... Um, of John 1 verse 14. It's why when we read that, we read that the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. This is absolutely shocking to the Jewish nation because Yahweh, God is holy. He lives in unapproachable light. People die when they look at him. And yet, because Jesus died for our wrongdoing, he made us a new creation. And you know, now we have become the dwelling place for the presence of God. We've become 
It's no longer a box that contains God's, but mankind's. The Bible tells us we have become temples of the Holy Spirit. And you know, I wanna say as a church, we very often, our, our slant, our bent is always to focus heavily on the love of God. We would focus on his approachableness, the approachability of God, of being able to enter into his presence because of what he's done for us and through us. We'd focus on our forgiving God, the God of grace who has forgiven us once and for all. And these are all great things, but actually they aren't the only focus. I wanna say the holiness of God, which this scripture points towards, is really good news. And it's an area that I think probably as a church, we slightly neglect. Uh, maybe because it's slightly difficult to deal with. But it's good news for us because the fact that Yahweh is set apart, that's what holy means, he's set apart, he's high and lifted up, he's resplendent and he sits in unapproachable light, he cannot stand sin one tiny bit. And this is why our God is so amazing. He is not like any other. But I also wonder as we think about the holiness and the presence of God, I wonder whether we have taken for granted the presence of God. I wonder if we've lost some of the reverence that we may have seen in the church maybe a few hundred years ago. I know as we see David's passion here and the, the lengths that he goes to, to make sure that he brings the presence of God back to him, it challenges me. And to see the lengths that he goes to is compelling. Do you know the people on this day, they were astounded at the presence and the power of Yahweh. And I think this is why as a church, we need to keep reminding ourselves of the God that we worship, of the astonishing miracle that it is that God would not only show us his mercy by not putting us to death as we deserve, but that he would come to earth. That this holy, perfect, spotless lamb would lay down his majesty and his life so we could experience his presence wherever we are. So in our houses during lockdown, in our workplaces, even in supermarket queues, we get to experience the presence of God because he lives and he dwells in us. It's remarkable. Verse nine says this. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom and the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. <clears throat> David developed what I think is a really healthy fear of the holiness of God that day. And you know, we see it in other areas of the Old Testament. We see it in Isaiah chapter six, especially. Uh, he saw the holiness of God. And you know what it did for him? It immediately made him so aware of his own failings. That's what it did for Isaiah. And he said, woe is me for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And we see it coming through this same, as he's seen the holiness of God, he sees his own failures. 
And David does the same. He questions here how the Lord of holiness could ever come to him. And I know for me that lockdown, it's been tough, especially in this area of corporate worship. I want to say it's probably, in fact, it's definitely the thing that I miss most from us meeting together. That worshipping together. And, you know, just as David longed for the ark of uh, the presence of God back in the camp, missing corporate worship is actually helping me. I hope it's helping you to see maybe where we've taken things for granted. And I want to say that I am so excited and expectant about meeting together again and, and coming together as a corporate body into his presence and hearing him speak and knowing his touch. And we read from this passage that after he sees Obed-Edom's blessing by the presence of God, that's what the presence of God does, it does bring blessing. He goes back to his original mission to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And so verse 14, if you've got your Bibles, it says, David, we're moving on now to uh, where he's actually um, bringing the Ark again. So he's decided to go back and get it. It says, David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. I love David in this scene because I think actually we're seeing that in the presence of God, there is only one thing that we can do. And David does it here. He's worshipping. He is so excited and he knows the absolute significance of this moment happening right here. The ark is returning to Israel and David wants to see, uh, he wants his people to see how he responds to the presence of God. He wants them to dance and to sing. He wants them to see his joy and his excitement. And he purposefully in this passage humbles himself in front of the people. We find out he's in this ephod. He, he downs his kingly robes, the clothing that sets him apart, the items that elevate his status amongst his people. And he wears this linen ephod. He wants the people to see who the true king of Israel actually is. He may have been anointed king, but he is but a servant of the one true God's. I want to say there is a humility here that is beautiful and, and, and so important because what we're about to see in this next part of this passage is an encounter with his wife, Michael. And remember, Michael is Saul's daughter. And we're going to see what happens from verse 16 as she witnesses him dancing extravagantly before his people and before the ark. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched him from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They bought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person 
in the whole crowd of the Israelites, both men and women. Um, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he's appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Michael here is standing watching these celebrations. She's an onlooker of this momentous occasion happening. And we find out she despises his actions. Her father, Saul, would never have behaved like this. He would never have embarrassed himself like this. He was a king. He was regal. And actually, we find out he didn't even ever bow before the ark. He wouldn't bow before the ark. And we know that Saul was so concerned about the outward appearance. Actually, what was going on is he wanted to be worshipped. Uh, he wanted to be recognized. He wanted to be, um, he actually set up a monument to himself. And this was one of the vast differences. It's why David, even though we're going to see all of his mistakes, was known as a man after God's own heart. You see, he loved God. He worshipped him. He exalted him and he served him. I remember an incident back in Leeds in the church that uh, I went to and it had just started, it was a church plant and um, we'd started to grow quite a lot, especially among students in the church. And we'd got up to about 60 students in the church. It was mainly student heavy church. And uh, I remember inviting the CU president. Uh, we started to get a name for ourselves and I invited her to the church. She wasn't really going to a church, uh, but she'd been slightly put off by our church. It was a conversation that she'd had with somebody from our church. And so I sat down with her and I chat with her and I said, look, come along and check it out yourself. So she agreed to come uh, on this Sunday. And I remember bringing her into church and sitting next to her and there's the bustle and it's feeling great. And, and then this, I realized who's leading worship that Sunday. And it was a lady who, to be honest, wasn't the most musically gifted. And I'm then starting to panic slightly. And it got worse as this lady started singing a song to the wrong tune. And she gets about four lines through and realizes she can't sing this song because she's in the wrong tune. And uh, I'm starting to cringe here thinking, oh no, what have I bought her to? Then somebody gets up with their flag and they start waving flags around this building. And I just wanted to curl up in a ball, to be honest, and die. That's what it felt like. I remember just being so embarrassed. And I thought, there's no way this girl is ever going to recommend us to other students. Um, there's no way she's going to endorse what we're doing as a church. By the way, I'm, I'm not endorsing flag waving, by the way. But, um, but if that's your thing, then go for it. 
Um, but you know, just thinking about this, the, this lady who was leading worship, she was a worshiper. I wanna say she loved God dearly. And in reflection, I was like Michael here, standing, criticizing the service, like it was some sort of show, like it was all about what it looked like or sounded like. And I have to be honest, as I reflect on that, I'm, I'm ashamed. And yet I can still fall into this trap at time of missing the point of what are we doing? Now, I'm not saying I want things to be done badly either. I want things done well. I think gifted worship leaders like we have help to lead us in uninterrupted uh, worship into the very presence of God. And uh, I wanna say that as we enter the presence of God, we've seen it from David, there is only one response. It's to worship and become even more undignified before this conquering king that we serve, before our holy gods. And I just wanna say it's so easy, I think, to be a bystander in worship. Uh, it's been even easier as we've uh, had worship in our homes. And I think just to, to, to critique other people's worship from afar like Michael, instead of entering in joyfully. And during this, as we see, he, he confronts her. Um, but I'm so impressed with David by the fact that he doesn't cave to the pressure and the shame that his wife, Michael, puts on him in this passage. I think it would have been so easy for David to have toned down his actions in the future, given what Michael was saying. Maybe to have reset his barometer of how he worships Yahweh. And yet he rebukes her almost. He says, listen, I'm going to go even further. So if you found that difficult today, then you're going to find me getting even more inappropriate in the presence of God, because what he's saying is God deserves all of my extravagant worship. And I guess like David in the Old Testament and the woman who anointed Jesus' feet in the new, we find that not everybody likes to see Jesus worshiped as he deserves. And I wanna say as a church, we have a choice today as Christians, are we gonna tone down our worship? Are we gonna join with those that moan and criticize I think even our British culture, it doesn't play into extravagant worship. We like to be in control. We like to do things properly. We don't like to be embarrassed ourselves. But if we're honest, some of these are great excuses as to why we maybe we, we don't worship with the sort of extravagance we see David exhibiting here. But I think it goes deeper than that. Phil Moore says this, he says, this passage reminds us that there is no place which reveals Saul hiding in our hearts quite so clearly as the place of worship. And I wanna say for me, as I, as I reflect on this, the only way to rid the soul in our hearts is to become even more consumed by the holy God who has rescued us, to worship him more and more extravagantly, to spend time enjoying and rejoicing in his presence. And uh, I wanted to end by just asking a few questions. Um, I know lockdown's been hard, but I wanna ask you, when was the last time you got really, truly excited about coming into the presence of the king of the universe in your very home? Do you find yourself easily distracted by other things going on? 
Do you find yourself critiquing others regularly instead of focusing on your own heart? The beauty about this passage is God reveals his holiness to us. But I want to say this isn't as a warning that we should run from him in eternal terror, but as a welcome to us to run to him where weak and failing sinners always find grace that lasts forever. I hope this has helped you today. We're going to worship now. And I just want to encourage you, honestly, just to, uh, just to let your hearts worship him in maybe a way that you haven't. To come expectant of the God who acts, the God who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, the God who is all powerful and holy.